you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn to John chapter 2 with me this morning, but we want to actually start in John 20. So we'll come back to John 2. We want to start a mini-series, take a break, a short break from our study in the book of Romans for the summer or for two months of the summer for June and July. We want to look at the seven signs of the gospel of John. And I mentioned this when we had our Resurrection Sunday service. We were actually in this passage, you may recall, and we looked at this purpose statement for the book of John. And I want to remind you of what it is. And it's found in John chapter 20. Uh, Look at verse 30 and 31. John's finishing his book. Uh, We basically have a prologue in chapter 21, but in chapter 20 at the end, he says, this is why I wrote the book. This is why the Holy Spirit inspired it. We don't have this kind of purpose statement in every book that we study in the Bible. It's always helpful when we're studying a book of the Bible to have it right there for us, isn't it? And here it is. Now, Jesus did many other, what is the next word? Okay, are you reading along? Uh, Now, Jesus did many other what? signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book that's the gospel of john but these are written so that you may believe that jesus is the christ the son of god and that by believing you may have life in his name so what he's saying here just to help us bring this back to the forefront of our minds he chose certain signs there were a lot more that he could have included he chose seven actually and many Bible students will refer to the first 12 chapters of the Gospel of John as the book of signs. The last chapters, from chapter 13 all the way to chapter 20, is referred to the book of glory. So if you wanted to just divide up the book, the first part is the book of signs. And there are seven signs that John chooses under inspiration of the Spirit to do something. What was he trying to do? Well, it tells us right here, doesn't it, in John 20? He was proving by choosing these signs that Jesus was who he claimed to be, the Son of God, and in order that you might believe and have eternal life through his name. So these signs are actually evangelistic in purpose. Big word. They are used and intended to bring men and women to faith in Jesus Christ. So if they are to fulfill their God-given, and they will, purpose, It is to bring people to a saving knowledge of Christ. And perhaps that'll be the case this morning. Now, if you'll turn back with me to John 2, I want to start our series today with the first sign. There are seven of them. And I, along with the other pastors, are going to preach from each of these over the course of the next eight weeks or two months. So John chapter 2 here is the famous sign at the wedding at Cana where Jesus turned water into wine. And that is going to be our topic this morning. So let's read verses 1 to 11. And I want you to note the characters that are at play here. Perhaps you've read this passage so often that maybe you missed one. I noticed, noted after the first service, after talking to a few folks, that there was a, a character in this narrative that they had missed, and perhaps you have before, so I'm giving you kind of an easy reminder before we study it together about all the characters in the passage. Let's begin our reading in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. 
And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So that means that roughly 120 to 150 gallons were available there in those purification water jugs. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of the signs, do you see it there? Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples, what? Believed in him. Now, don't forget, John 20 told us this was the purpose of the signs. Here's the first one. Today, we want to consider water turned to wine. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as your people on earth. We are conscious that you are in heaven. Your name is to be hallowed and reverenced and adored. You are thrice holy God. You are set apart from all evil. Lord, we rejoice that you have given us the opportunity to be called your children, having been born again by believing the truth, the gospel that your son Jesus lived the life we haven't lived and died the death we rightly and justly deserve and rose from the dead and now all who believe in him have eternal life and we pray that today there will be those that will see this first sign that our Lord Jesus performed at this wedding years ago and believe on him as the son of God and have eternal life we pray as believers that you would confirm and grow our trust and confidence in Jesus through our study of these signs, and we pray this for the glory of your Son. Amen. One of the repeated privileges that a pastor has is the best place to view a wedding. I was talking to my wife yesterday, I think it was, and we were talking about how many weddings I've had the opportunity to officiate. It's somewhere between 55 and 60. A lot of weddings that I've had the opportunity in New Hampshire and even now that I've been in Pennsylvania to officiate. Besides being the groom, and usually you should only be a groom once, um, and besides being a best man or a maid of honor, no one has a better view of that bride coming down the aisle like the officiant, like the pastor who is being able to officiate the wedding. And I will be very candid with you. I cry every time I see a bride come down with her father. Now, it's not because I'm that close to every bride who I've had the privilege of officiating their wedding. I've had always this thought that this is going to be me one day walking down the aisle with my daughter to hand her over to uh, some uh, very lucky man. And uh, I'm going to be doing that, God willing, in, in just about a month. But one of the neat factors of being able to watch weddings up close like that is you get to see things others miss. You miss maybe the bright eyes or the short breath or the sweaty palms when they're trying to put the rings on one another's fingers or 
the blushing or the, the, you might even hear this and observe it, their voice begins to tremble because they understand the solemnity and the joyful occasion that they are being participants of. But that's all good stuff. But in all those weddings that I've had the privilege of participating in, there's been some really bad things that have happened. I say bad things, things that were unplanned. In fact, it's happened so often that I generally tell the couple and those that are in the bridal party at the rehearsal, something will go unplanned at this wedding. Let's chalk it up as a memory rather than letting it spoil your day. I mean, I have had occasions where in weddings, the groom, after giving him all of the various information that he needs to say yes to or I do to, his response was, can you run that by me one more time? It was a scary moment, but maybe not. Maybe he just wanted to make sure he knew what he was agreeing to. I've had brides where their shoes got stuck in a hole on the platform and they lost their shoe on the way down from the platform or on the way up from the platform. Some of the most interesting moments are when usually groomsmen uh, fail to take my advice and not lock their knees and they go horizontal during the wedding and they have to carry them out and sometimes they bring them back in during the ceremony. These kinds of things can happen. Well, something very shameful happens at this wedding. And we understand and we acknowledge and we appreciate that weddings take a lot of planning. But in a shame-honor culture, to run out of wine was a huge problem. It was shameful to the bridegroom. In, in their culture, the bridegroom and his family was responsible for basically footing the bill for the whole feast and the whole wedding ceremony. And it was a big social event. And our weddings are big social events, but... This one was particularly so. And what I want you to see is there's one action line that gives us what we're supposed to do with this passage. And it's found in verse number five. You'll notice it. Mary responds to Jesus saying to her, what do I have to do with you right now? Or what does this have to do with me? And look what she says at the end of verse number five. She says, do whatever he tells you. Can you say that with me? Do whatever he tells you. Now, I'm always looking for action statements. I think it's part of my personality is how I'm wired in a passage of Scripture. Well, here's one where Mary says to the servants, here's what you need to do. Do whatever he tells you. Can you say that with me again? Do whatever he tells you. I want to break up this passage with W's, okay? I think it'll make it easier for us to follow along. It neatly divides up with the wedding, the woman, the water jugs or the water um, cans, then we're going to look at the wine, and finally I want to look at the why. First of all, the wedding. We're told that on the third day, and this is kind of a running calendar week that John is using, many Bible students have noted that just like creation starts in Genesis 1 with the creation of the world, similarly, John begins that way, in the beginning was the word, and that now there's this catalog of days, and this is actually the seventh day, and you'll note that Jesus often performed his miracles on the Sabbath day. It got him in trouble with the, the religious leaders. But here's this wedding, and he is attending it, and he's not only attending it, but his disciples are with him. You'll notice that it says his disciples were there. This is only, as we understand, five at this point. He only has five disciples based on chapter one. So it's not the full 12. And we're told that Mary was doing something that had to do with catering. Probably, my best guess is one of Jesus' brothers 
or sisters, I guess you'd call them his stepbrothers and stepsisters, because they were the children of Joseph and Mary. He had at least what we study in the New Testament, three sisters and two brothers, and perhaps one of them getting married, and Jesus attends the wedding with the five disciples, and Mary's supposed to be making sure that there's plenty of food. Joseph, apparently, her husband is dead. He's not mentioned anymore, so he's probably already passed. And Mary comes to Jesus and says, they're out of wine. This wedding event, though, I want to remind you, was much different than what we enjoy today. Now, wedding events are still big. You put together a guest list. You have a bridal party. You select wedding locations. All the eyes of the guests are on the bride and these special occasions. But this was an important social event in their culture, more so than even ours. In a shame and honor culture, it was not just a family event, it was a community event. Often entire villages were invited to these weddings. And I've mentioned this to you before, these weddings weren't just one day. It wasn't just that one weekend. You have a rehearsal dinner and then you have your wedding day. These were week long. Oftentimes they would go seven days. Now, if you're in charge of the catering, that can be difficult, if you can imagine, when the whole village is invited and they're expecting for the wine and food to be flowing for seven days without any interruption. Well, this is a horror. What a faux pas for this bridegroom. This bridegroom has, at his wedding feast, the wine is gone. There's no more wine. I want you to imagine the culture that is so much different than ours that this one this point about the wedding can sometimes be missed when we only compare it to our weddings today. It's not just like there wasn't a few pieces of cake left for a few of the guests. They could actually take the bridegroom to court and have litigation if you weren't hospitable and you ran out of wine during a wedding feast. This is how bad this was. This was um, against the social norms. But I want us to just park here for a moment. The commentators seem to be befuddled, and I always find that interesting when you're reading commentators who are supposed to be all-knowing, and they're befuddled by why did Jesus choose as his first sign, his first miracle, to prove that he was the Son of God, something as mundane as a wedding, and something as what they call profane as running out of wine, and trying to protect a bridegroom and his bride from the shame that they would have because they ran out of wine. But I believe there's more to it here. I believe the one thing we can see right away is that the Lord Jesus placed his stamp of approval and his support on the institution of marriage. The importance of this wedding day for Jesus and his disciples to be there. The significance of the vows that they were going to make. We may see this miracle at a wedding as mundane and even profane, but I would suggest to you that it is monumental and profound. That Jesus, by attending this wedding, was showing his approval, his support of what God had created and no man should put asunder. That being one man and one woman for one lifetime. So that's the wedding. And now there's the problem. There's no wine. Let's talk about the woman. And the reason I refer to her is not just to be alliterating. I want you to see that that's what Jesus calls her. And that is an interesting point in this whole passage. When she comes to Jesus and says to her son, they have no wine, here's his response. I've often wondered why this passage is ever chosen for a Mother's Day sermon. It befuddles me because this is not what any mother wants to hear when she asks her son for assistance. Guys, do not try this at home. 
And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. I may or may not have had a moment where one of my children responded to me that way when I gave them a chore. But I do not suggest that. What's happening here? Why did he refer to his mother as a woman? I mean, Mary sought out her oldest son. It makes sense. But what was she wanting Jesus to do? Now, there is a group of what we call spurious writings called the Gnostic Gospels. Have you ever heard of those? Shake your head if you have. The Gnostic Gospels were, were they're false. They're not true. They're not inspired. They were written, most of them, in the second century. Famous books on the New York Times bestseller list, like the Da Vinci Code, were based on these Gnostic Gospels. But in those Gnostic Gospels, they tried to say that Jesus would perform miracles before he actually performed his first miracle. In fact, in some of those Gnostic Gospels, they say that he would carve out a pigeon on a piece of wood, and he would let it go, and it would fly into the heavens. Or much worse, when he got angry at someone on the playground, he would zap them with an illness, or he would zap them dead. These are in the Gnostic Gospels. Of course, these are spurious. Of course, these are not true. Right here in this passage, it says in verse 11, this was his first miracle. I only tell you that because Mary was not coming to say, Jesus, you've helped me out in a pinch before. I mean, you've, you've, you've created things when we didn't have them at home and the cupboard or the pantry was empty. Can you bring one of those tricks to the forefront right now? Really need your help. That's not what Mary was asking. Because the text tells us, besides observing her perfect son who did not say a bad word, did not say an idle word, did not have a wrong thought, did never committed any sin, besides that, she had seen nothing miraculous of sorts. What was she asking him to do? I would suggest that when you have a son who's perfect and you have a son who's always a servant at home as he was a servant to come and die for the sins of his people, you would also have to say that she knew her son to be resourceful. She knew her son to be dependable. Who's she going to go to for help? But what about this question causes Jesus to refer to her this way? Now, there have been those, even if you have an NIV, that have tried to make this sound a lot nicer than it actually is. If you have an NIV, it probably says, dear woman. That really isn't reflected in the text. It makes it easier for us to hear, dear woman. He wasn't calling her woman. That sounds a lot better. But actually, he's calling her woman. Why? Well, I don't believe it's disrespectful because that would be sinful. What I do believe is happening here is Jesus is separating himself from the parental relationship and his relationship as Lord of heaven and earth with Mary. You see, what's happening in this moment is you could refer it to, I grew up in the South, and we would always say as a term of respect to our parents, and I still find myself doing this when I'm on the phone with my parents, say, yes, ma'am, or yes, sir. That's the way we referred to our parents. It was, it was a an issue of respect. By calling her woman, he was not disrespecting her, but he was distancing her, himself from the physical relationship or the paternal relationship that he had. Some people come to this passage and they say, well, hey, this is clearly teaching that Mary has an inside track with Jesus because after all, we know how this text ends. She gets what she wants. So maybe she is a mediatrix or she is a co-mediator with God and Jesus to help us get the requests that we want. Some of you have Catholic friends that truly believe that Mary has some inside track 
and she is able to get requests from Jesus that the rest of us cannot get. But if that were true, because she got what she asked for, she's some sort of co-mediator with the Father and Jesus, that would mean that anybody who requested any help of Jesus in the New Testament and got what they asked for, they're also co-mediators. We understand that's not true. That's not what this passage is teaching. You remember in 2 Corinthians 5 where Paul said this, we knew Christ after the flesh, but now we know him no more like that. Remember that passage? Shake your head if you do. Okay, if you don't, it's there, all right? He's saying, we used to know Jesus according to the flesh, but now that he's ascended into heaven, we know him no more like that. This same title Jesus used on the cross. Remember the seven sayings from the cross? And he didn't refer to Mary as mother. He referred to Mary as what? Woman, behold your son, referring to John, the beloved disciple. Son, behold your mother. This is a gentle rebuke. Jesus is declaring his utter freedom from any kind of human advice, agenda, or manipulation. His sole purpose was to do his father's what? Will. Now, another incident. We only have one incident in the life of Jesus Christ as a young boy. He was 12 years old. He's in the temple. His parents are headed back. They find out he's not with them. Mary comes, Joseph comes back to the temple. He's there having discussions and arguments with the religious leaders. And Mary rebukes him. Do you not realize that your father and I were worried? And what did Jesus say? Did you not know I was going to be about my father's business? All right. So what we see in the life of Jesus, he respects his parents, but he's making this clear distinction between his lordship over Mary and her need to bow the knee to him as much as acknowledging that he, she was his earthly mother. How hard would this have been for Mary? My imagination kind of goes wild here. I just think, never been a mother, obviously, but imagining the woman who bore him, nursed him, taught his baby fingers those elementary skills, as many of you moms have done over and again, watched him fall over as he began to learn to walk. Apparently, she had come to rely on him as the family provider with Joseph not being around. And now, these family ties are, are being cut. And he's reminding her that she doesn't have any more prerogatives of motherhood. That she could not approach him as the inside track of, I'm your mom, do something for me. Perhaps this was part of the sword that the angel predicted would pierce her heart. I look at this passage and I say, are there times where we try to use our inside track to Christ? Do we try to bring him down to our level? I do shudder sometimes when I hear believers that have become so familiar with the things of God and the things of Christ that it almost breeds contempt. They will speak of Jesus almost like their butler or their servant or their homeboy or their pal or their co-pilot. No, no he's the Lord of glory, folks. And, and this distinction is not disrespectful, but it's his first sign, and it's a reminder that not Mary, the earthly mother of Jesus, not any human has an inside track to God through Jesus. Jesus is our track to God. He is the great mediator. So that's the woman. We've looked at the wedding, the woman. I want you to look at the water jars now, because Jesus, after saying this, he says, he finishes it with, my hour has not yet come. Now, this phrase, if you look at it throughout the Gospel of John, always 
means one thing. What was that hour he was referring to? His death on the cross. And he's saying, my hour, my ultimate hour hasn't come. Now, I don't think Mary was necessarily, she probably, I, I don't think she's ever witnessed any miracle. So I don't think she was asking for a trick. So I believe that his statement is not just for Mary, it's, it's for all of us who now have this recorded by the inspiration of Scripture. And he's saying, my hour, my ultimate hour is my death on the cross for the sins. But what about the water jars? He says to the servants, Mary says, do whatever he tells you to do. Wonderful advice. So, so this woman now is demonstrating her trust. Even if she's hurt, how is Mary responding? Do whatever he what? He tells you to do. But these water jars, these pots, were used for ceremonial washings. They're filled to the brim, we're told. I think I mentioned this to you before. I said to my wife yesterday, I, I got a big, it was so hot, right, yesterday? It's so hot today. But I got a big, there's the same price at McDonald's, the same price. But you can get any size sweet tea for a dollar. So I got the largest one. You tell them light on the ice. And I told my wife, I said, the greatest drink ever created is sweet tea. Now, she argued with me about that. But when I was a kid, my mom from Mississippi, we always had not just one gallon of sweet tea in the refrigerator. There was always a second one, just in case we got low. We could never run out of sweet tea. But what we would do is she would pour that sweet tea in our cups, and my brother and I would say, fill it to the tippity-tippity. Now, the tippity-tippity was our unscientific way of describing when you fill it so high that you've got a little bit on the top, and if you jostle it, it's all over the place and stickies all over the place. When I read this, fill it to the brim, that's what I imagine. I imagine these 150 gallons, potentially, of these ceremonial water jars being filled with water. So he's saying, pull the water out of the well and fill them up to the brim. Now, what were these used for? They were used for ceremonial washings, it was a reminder of the old covenant. It was a reminder of the ceremonial law, all of the sacrificial system, all of the cleanliness rules of Leviticus and Numbers and Exodus. Some of you know those passages. You've gotten bogged down in them when you tried to read your Bible through. But all of those passages, these were extensions of that. These were not the laws the Lord had given, but the religious leaders had built fences around God's law so as not to violate it. They had mossed over with gross legalism their own rules. And one of those rules was, were these washings. Mark has an interesting passage, and it's a little bit hidden in the English translation, but he's talking about their washings. They were obsessive with their washings. They began to wash themselves all the way up to their shoulder blades before they would eat. Then they would wash their seats. It literally says they washed their couches in these jars. I mean, that's really being hygienic. Perhaps you've noticed some folks, even during the pandemic, that have taken this hygiene and this cleanliness to levels that it should have never been taken, right? This is kind of what's happening here. And these ceremonial cleansing water jars were used for that purpose. But remember, these are signs. That word sign is not the typical word used for miracles in the other Gospels. The other word used for miracles that you'll often see we get our English word dynamite from, dunamis, something that shows his power. The word sign is more than that. It does show his power, but there's also more meaning to it, more theological implications to what's happening through the miracle. And what's happening in John chapter 1 all the way to John chapter 4, don't miss this. Sometimes 
it's like real estate, right? I think I told you this last week. Location, location, location. And what you see in this passage is from John 1 to John chapter 4, he's saying Jesus is better. This is new. Out with the old, in with the new. He's the new tabernacle. He's the new temple. He's the new worship. You don't worship in Gerizim, he told the woman at the well. You don't worship in Jerusalem. You worship Jesus now in spirit and in truth. The Messiah is here. And here again, this is a picture. These ceremonial cleansing jugs, they were a picture of the old covenant being discarded and the new covenant in Jesus Christ coming in. Now imagine, they fill them up. The servants, they've been told by Mary. She's in charge of catering. They probably were hired by Mary. You do whatever she tells you. And she told them, do whatever he tells you to do. So they fill these up. You got 150 gallons of water. And then we have the next point, point number four, the wine. Jesus doesn't pray over this. He doesn't wave his hand over it. He doesn't say a formula over it. He just exercises his will. Now, he doesn't do all of his miracles the same, but, but let's not miss this. As the creator God, who Jesus is, he didn't even say anything. He just says, draw out the wine. Now, in the original, I know some come to this passage and they get really shaky. I, I mentioned this at the first service. So um, there are perhaps some of us who have grown up in a very conservative Baptist traditions and whenever wine or alcoholic beverages are mentioned, there has to be something different than what we're reading in the text. This cannot mean that Jesus created fermented alcoholic beverages. That They can't mean that. And I have read many what I call hermeneutical gymnastics that try to make this say what it doesn't say. But I, I want you to understand something. The technical word here, this will help you. The technical Greek word for wine here is wine. Okay. Seriously. So I, I'm not going to try to make the text say something that it doesn't say. Jesus Christ, at the wedding at Cana, created oinos. He created wine, a beverage that contains some alcohol for this occasion. Now, is there debate about how much water was added to that wine? Yes, there is a debate. But I, I do think that's an aside. <laughs> That's not why the Lord gave us this sign, so that we can have arguments about the good or bad nature of any type of imbibing of alcoholic beverages. What I want you to see here is that the coming age of the Messiah, all through the Old Testament, talks about it's going to be an age of beautiful, rich wine. That there is going to be a time of joy. This wine referred to the joy of God that would be upon his people, the blessings of God on his people. Wine describes the messianic age. It describes the time of the Messiah. It describes the, the joy and the, the hearts filled with rejoicing and praise that are rejoicing because all of the old covenant, they were all shadows, but now they've been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Don't miss this either. The first miracle of Moses in Exodus was what? Turning water into blood, which was for condemnation. But here Jesus symbolically is turning water into wine and reminding us that it is all blessing and joy 
This is what Christ is bringing. He's also reminding us of the powerful aspect of Christ and the gospel and the word, that it, it, it pleases and satisfies our sensations. Now, again, I understand, I understand very well, actually, that it's difficult for some of us who, all of us, hopefully, acknowledge the dangers of becoming addicted to alcoholic beverages for us to richly enjoy a text like this. Because I understand, you get there and you say, wait, can't you? I want you for a moment to enjoy the rich Old Testament imagery that the Lord Jesus is bringing and saying it's going to be flowing with wine. This is the new kingdom. This is the opportunity that my people are going to have to rejoice with me in the salvation that I bring to them. I also want to say to those of us that struggle with this to remember like all aspects, the scriptures tell us that God has given us all things richly to enjoy. That would include sex, that would include food, that would include sleep, and all of those can be abused. We can sin in all of those categories. But don't miss that the power of the sensation here, he's saying salvation is like wine. It's going to bring joy to the heart. And Jesus now, his first semi-public miracle, is turning the water into wine, the old covenant into the new. We're not unfamiliar with this. I mean, Psalm 34 says, taste and see that the Lord is what? Good. Psalm 119 says, open my eyes and let me behold wonderful things out of your law. Believer, I want to ask you something real quickly. I've mentioned this to you before, but some of us, and, and rightly so, we can become so fixated on making sure we believe right doctrine, which we should. Amen? Amen? I better amen than that. But, but we can become somewhat theoretical in our relationship with our Christ we don't understand the experiential nature of our salvation. Particularly when you're reading the Psalms, don't you see all the sensory descriptions of knowing our God? I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm dry and in a barren land. I just want to taste God. I need the scriptures. I need the word. I'm panting like a deer after the water brook. I think sometimes we can come to passages like this and completely miss what the Spirit of God is reminding us, that there will be rich wine and joy in our relationship with Christ as he replaces the old covenant. I want to finish with the last W, the why. Why this sign? It seems a little bit difficult for us to get immediate application from. But I want to finish with the narrative by saying there is two responses or two ways to receive this. You'll notice at the end of it, it says his disciples did what here? Are you with me? Verse 11, they did what? They believed in him. The first thing that has to happen in each of these signs, the Lord Jesus regularly places us here. In order to receive Christ, is you have to admit that you are completely out. In this case, you have to admit you're completely out of wine. So, so Mary didn't come and say, you know what? We need to top off. Can you tip us off here? Can you top us off here? You know, we're kind of seven-eighths of, of a gallon here or seven-eighths of a tank, and we need just a, just a top-off. No, no, she says, we don't have any wine. We're out. In order to believe in Christ, we have to come to the same place that this bridegroom that Mary came to, that without Christ intervening, we are completely out. But I want you to see the other side of this. 
And this is the character that I mentioned to first service, and I'm going to mention to you again that sometimes we overlook. There's a character here who's kind of the, the, the um, MC, or he's kind of like the, um, the one who's in charge of all of the entertainment or the whole wedding feast. You'll notice he's mentioned here when the wine comes to him. Look at this in verse number 8. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So this master of ceremonies, he, he was the guy that kept the party lively. My understanding is they would generally choose somebody who had a personality. Someone who could, when the party was getting kind of a lull, they would bring it back. And so he's in charge of the whole feast. And he might have or not known that they had run out of wine because evidently he didn't know that. So they bring him the wine that had been turned from water to wine. And what does he say? He says, this is unusual. What typically happens is you serve your best wine first, and then when the palate becomes a little numb, you come in with the cheap stuff. But you waited, and you brought the best wine at the end. I want you to see this. Not only do you have to admit that you're out, you have to take credit for what Jesus accomplished. You notice this. This is not a totally public sign. All the other signs are completely in the public. This one is semi-public. Only the disciples, five, Mary and the servants saw this one. And when the head of ceremonies tastes it, and the bridegroom, he calls the bridegroom over and he says, this is a wonderful thing you've done. You waited to the end and you gave us the best wine. The bridegroom, either wittingly or unwittingly, did not say, wait, 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 I can't take credit for that. Jesus just turned 150 gallons of water into wine. That's why it's so good. It's the creator of the universe. No, what happened was this bridegroom who was facing shame, perhaps litigation and embarrassment, he got to take all the credit for Jesus' miracle. And that's exactly what Jesus does for us. I mean, we are facing shame, eternal damnation because of our sin. And Jesus has borne that sin on the cross. He's taken it away. He's borne away our iniquities. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was chastised. And now we have this peace with God because of Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And we get the credit for all of his righteousness. Amen? 2 Corinthians 5.21 calls us the great exchange, doesn't it? He became sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made what? The righteousness of God in him. I want to finish with a couple other application points. If you've never trusted in Jesus, you need to take credit for his accomplishment. You say, well, that feels like pride, or it feels like I'm stealing somebody else's accomplishment. He has gladly and willingly taken your sin so that you can have his righteousness. But you must believe. And this sign is one of those signs that is supposed to bring belief in your heart. But I want to make some other applications for us. As I studied this, I noticed... You go to Christ with little things, right? I mean, this, the, the, the non-spectacular nature of this is so domesticated. He just didn't want a groom and his new bride to be shamed and their family to be shamed. So he comes to the rescue. It's really a little thing. I mean, he's not healing someone who has a deadly disease. He's not feeding a bunch of hungry people in this one. It's a pretty mundane miracle. But Jesus Christ can be gone to for the little things. Yes? And also, I want you to see, we need to submit, like Mary, to his timing. He says to Mary, he says, my hour hasn't come. 
It was a legitimate request, but it wasn't time. And, and Jesus wasn't saying, I'm not going to answer that prayer. But he was saying, my ultimate time, everything that I'm doing is headed toward this ultimate hour when I will die on the cross for the sins of the world. And this legitimate quest is not about the timing. He's saying to Mary, sometimes you have to wait. And this is what the Christian life looks like, right? Our family just went through a very grueling time, as you know, and four months isn't that long. Some of you are going through trials that have lasted much longer, and you don't even have an expiration date on those trials. But I remember at times finding myself frustrated. I would be like, Lord, are you not hearing my prayer? Are you not hearing our request? But here he, he, he's telling Mary, submit to my timing. I want to finish with just a reminder that what we're about to do in participating in Lord's table, the Lord Jesus reminded us once again at the Last Supper when he instituted this meal that we will not do this again until he's serving us from the vine on that great day, the great supper of the Lamb. He will be the one that will be serving us on that great occasion. And we're supposed to look with anticipation. So every time we have Lord's table, we're supposed to look in the past, his sacrifice on the cross. We're supposed to look in the present to make sure that we're right with God and we're not withholding sin and not confessing it to the Lord or not at all with brothers and sisters. That's supposed to happen. But we're also supposed to look to the future. Aren't you going to be excited about the day when you don't have sinful pastors serving you Lord's table? You're going to have the Lord Jesus. We're going to have the Lord Jesus serving us on that great supper of the Lamb. And we're to look forward to that. And I believe the Lord Jesus, as he's referred to as the bridegroom, he's referred to as, we are referred to as his bride. He was looking forward to that day of his own wedding. And that wedding, no matter your marital status on this side of heaven, some of you are disappointed because you've never been married. Some of you are disappointed because you are married. Whatever the case is, you are going to, and I'm going to enjoy, as the bride of Christ, this perfect bridegroom and the perfect eternal relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ forever. This is the first sign. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the clarity and the domestication of your word that you meet us in the everyday events of life. You demonstrate for us that there's no request too small that you care about our sensations, our experience, our relationship with you, the joy that you bring through the power of the gospel in our lives that remains even when we're going through difficult situations and circumstances. We ask today, Lord, that this sign would be impressed upon every heart, those that do not believe that your son is the eternal son of God, that do not believe that he took their sins as a substitute, that today they would look at this sign and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and enjoy eternal life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.